Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 9. Now, when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning. Uh, yeah, I was glad that Zach took some time to address the events of this past weekend. It's important because occasionally something happens in our uh, culture sort of at large that will uh, inevitably force us into really deep questions about who we are um, as uh, Christians and, and simply as, as citizens of a pluralist society. Um, the white supremacist rally, it confirms so much of what we believe as Christians. First of all, the, the outrage in response to white supremacist rally, it, it confirms this, this nerve that, that the, those protesters were hitting on this thing that, we, that I think we deeply know, uh, and that is one of the initial doctrines in Christianity of creation, which is the Imago Dei. This idea that all people are created in God's image, and that there is an equality of value there. And to disregard that aspect, this initial aspect of our faith, um, leads to such, uh, such danger and such terror and evil. Uh, the second thing that it confirms is our innate sin nature that we are corrupted by, that sin has come in and corrupted this uh, image of God that we all carry. And so uh, what, we saw, what we saw this weekend was something that's very uh, typically implicit in our culture, a racism like that, uh, that was very explicit. And what that brings us to terms with is this thing that's often very implicit in ourselves, which is this sin nature. 
this tendency towards a tribalism and away from a unity, a tendency towards a self-centeredness and away from an other-centeredness or, or hopefully even a, a centeredness on what God is doing in the world. And so uh, when we see the evils of an event like this past weekend and just an idea that seems to be really percolating in our culture, it confirms this doctrine of sin. The danger is that we can see people purely as uh, just, just mere enemies um, as much as we'd like to. And as easy as it is to do that with a situation like this where it seems so explicit. Um, we also have this doctrine in Christianity of common grace. So we are totally depraved. At our base, we don't choose God. And events like this, we can confirm that. But we aren't as bad as we could be because God is still intervening in the world. We have a deeper hope of rescue from the sin that corrupts us uh, in Jesus Christ, who broke down these barriers that divided Jew and Gentile, and will break down the barriers that divide black and white in the United States. It's critical for us as a church to see where the gospel uh, intersects with our culture and the aspects of our culture that it affirms and the aspects of our culture that it condemns. And that's the ability to think with the gospel, not just about the gospel. And this is one of those instances where we're we're forced into doing that. Uh, And I think as a church, this this is a moment in that sense worth seizing, speaking explicitly against the, a movement like white supremacy. Uh, It is, it's a, a violation of the things we most believe. So, I think, if, I think if we didn't say something about it, uh, that would be saying something. Uh, and I also think that, uh, events, that events like that that are, that are so explicitly evil uh, will be coloring whatever we do this morning anyway. So with that, I'd like to start uh, with prayer, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Father, uh, your, your word laid on the world uh, gives us a wisdom to, uh, uh, I think, be able to understand at, a, at such a level and such a depth why our world is the way that it is. It explains it more clearly than any other worldview or philosophy. But Father, that sort of knowledge that you give us, that you give us, it also pairs with a, a sensitivity, I think, uh, to where our knowing it doesn't allow us to distance ourselves from it, but actually exposes our hearts to its wounds. Father, I pray that you would grant us a wisdom and a uh, sensitivity and a clear perspective on how your gospel speaks to moments like this. Um, Father, I, I pray for uh, uh, those protesters, Lord. We, we sang a song this morning 
written by a slave trader. Uh, the hope of your gospel is that uh, you can change hearts. Um, Father, we pray that you would uh, change ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we are in uh, our series on Nehemiah. Uh, this is a story about exiles who were, remo- who were removed from their home in Jerusalem and were taken uh, to live in, as captives in Babylon. And this is the story of their return. This is the story of their return home. Uh, and what we see is a story that takes place in three acts. They return to rebuild, first of all, their temple, second of all, their community, and finally, they return to, bu- to rebuild the city and the infrastructure that makes their city, most importantly, the wall. Their cities in those days required a wall around them for security, to enable trade, to enable to store their uh, produce and what they've grown. And so uh, what we've seen so far is this man named Nehemiah who finds out that Jerusalem's walls were broken and in shambles, and therefore the city is in, is in shambles. And so his heart is stirred to go and lead this rebuilding effort in the city, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Last week, what we saw was a, uh, a rally cry. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and these, the, to basically a stagnant city that had stopped working to rebuild the wall, and he's able to rally them. And we saw that he did that by uh, providing them with a clear motivation, a clear why they, ought to re- why they ought to rebuild the wall. So they were united in this motivation that said, God is looking to rebuild our city, and God is for us in doing it. And that becomes this base motivation that they share in. In the next chapter, right after that, when they rally to start working, we see a list of who all started the work. And it's a list that expresses this incredible diversity of people, uh, from uh, poor people to rich people, rulers, uh, men, women, there's perfumers working next to goldsmiths. The entire community rallies around this central motivation to where the, the key factor in their identity, the thing that transcends the rest of their expressions of their identity, is this deep motivation that God is looking to rebuild our city. So it begins with this incredible enthusiasm that rallies people to start working. And then immediately, and this is what we'll see in the chapters that we're covering this morning, they face obstacles the entire course of their rebuilding. There isn't one instance of uh, where there isn't opposition that they are facing in the rebuilding. And so Nehemiah sort of takes this topic of opposition and he addresses it from chapters 4 through 6, he addresses topically what opposition they faced. And he lays them out. Enthusiasm, uh, think of like this. Enthusiasm is sort of like the solid rocket boosters, like on the space shuttle. And it gets you off the ground, it gets you going, it gets gets you the speed that you need, but they also quickly fall back down to Earth. What is it What is that thing that keeps you going so that you can actually reach orbit? (laughs) It can't just be enthusiasm, although that's a helpful starter. There's something else more grounded in your motivation that allows you to keep going amidst these obstacles. And that's what we see demonstrated this morning uh, 
through Nehemiah, through his perseverance, how he was able to maintain focus on the task at hand amidst constant obstacles. I think probably the best comment that I read in the commentaries that I read on this section that sums up uh, the key to Nehemiah's success, why it, why it worked, is uh, they described his success as a triumph of concentration. He was able to build the wall because he was able to maintain this incredible concentration throughout the project. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. While last week was very optimistic, this week is full of obstacles. So we'll see the external opposition that he faces, which is from deliberate, explicit enemies. And then we'll see the internal opposition that he faces, which is from people in the very people that he's working for and with become opposed to him. And then we'll see him face personal opposition, where the attacks on Nehemiah become very personal. And those should all be relatable things for us. Uh, it, it's relatable that we face people that feel deliberately opposed to our success. It's, I think it's relatable that we're on teams that seem disjointed and, and literally standing against what we're trying to accomplish. And personally, um, uh, facing personal attacks as well. So we'll see how Nehemiah moves through those. So we begin with the external opposition. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of, rub of rubbish and burned ones at that? The Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. It's very, this is sort of like a very cartoon moment <laughs> in the text. We have these two uh, leaders of other, uh, of surrounding cities, and they are literally standing, watching them reconstruct the wall, and saying things like, oh, what a stupid wall. A fox would break that down. <laughs> they all laugh together. See, the, the immediate opposition starts off as just this simple sort of jeering, just this coaxing. And that's not always bad for a team. That can sometimes be helpful, right? I think... Uh, Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor are making it easier on each other to want to punch each other in the face right now. And there's, uh, there's the same sort of thing that's happening. The, it's probably not a danger of discouragement. These, uh, these jeers and these jabs probably won't sink into a team that's rallied with this type of enthusiasm. The danger here is one of distraction. Because what can easily happen is the mindset of the builders can shift from the task at hand to the enemies that are attacking them. And so it can become this, it can become this shift even in motivation from we need to accomplish this wall because God is rebuilding our city to we need to show them. That shift in distraction, that shift in motivation, that I think is the real danger of what could happen because of this external opposition that they face, because of the simple jeering. I, uh, one of the folks who attends here, I won't point her out, her name is Michelle Brown. 
Um, she is a muralist, so she paints murals, like on walls. And the interesting thing about painting murals is it all takes place in public. It all takes place just sort of out here in the world with the rest of us. And so it's not like a typical piece of artwork in which you sort of have your time alone in the studio and you can refine it and then come out and present it. It's something that progresses out here with us. And so I was talking with Michelle about what that process is like, and uh, she said something that was pretty interesting, and I called her for the sermon and told her I would be talking about her um, and asked her to elaborate on it more. And uh, she, she commented on that process of building in public, and she said, or painting in public. She says, people feel like they can come up and say anything. That doesn't seem to be a case with a lot of other workers. Some guys walking, up, uh, walking by said, your buildings aren't aligned right. Another said, you're not going to put mountains in it, are you? Ugh, every painter puts mountains in their paintings. <laughs> uh, Michelle says, in art school, it's constant technical critiques. And those, those are actually helpful. But now, she says, no matter what people say, I know I have to stay on task to do what God has asked me to do because he has called me to do it. Even positive things I don't take totally to heart. See, there's such an ease. Uh, imagine Michelle painting, and she, she has this real commitment, and I know this from knowing her, of uh, that she's in, she's in a particular role that God has equipped her to do. Uh, as this muralist, and so she feels this real connection with her work. And imagine if all of a sudden the thing that started dictating what goes up on the wall is no longer this task from God, this gift that she has, but it's, it's uh, the jeers or even the praise of the crowd that walks by, the I really like this part, and all of a sudden more of that color makes its way in if it shouldn't have or the jeers of the mountains. And it's, ah, oh, gosh, I guess a lot of murals do have mountains. I'm not going to put them in this one now. Uh, see, Michelle nails exactly the key, and that's focusing on the reality that this is a task that God has called her to, and that all these other opinions, the danger that they threat is actually one of distraction from that task. The difficulty is staying focused on the task. That's the real danger that we have at risk. The task God is calling you to, that's the importance. Nehemiah understands this as well, and he doesn't allow this jeering to derail the focus of the group and of what they're working on. And he does this typically in a, in a sort of typical Nehemiah fashion, by prayer. Because the question is, how do we not allow this to distract us? How do we not allow the jeers or the praise of the crowd to distract us from what our goal is? And Nehemiah paints a perfect example of doing this by prayer, because prayer has this way of kind of grabbing our minds and refocusing them on, on the things that God has called us to in a way that nothing else really can. Nehemiah prays like this. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. 
turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we may be tempted to say that this type of prayer is simply off the table for Christians now. He's literally praying, like, don't blot out their sins. <laughs> that's a pretty intense prayer. And I think that there is an element of that that's actually true. An element that this is off the table for Christians now. That's actually true. We're called to pray for our enemies. We're called to uh, seek out their good. We're called to, to hope and pray that their sins would be blotted out just as ours have been. But there's another element of this that we really ought to learn from in Nehemiah. And that is, Nehemiah does not take any of his desire for vengeance, any of his desire for justice and revenge into his own hands. He leaves it completely with God. None of this is for him to do. but he leaves completely the desire for revenge with God. You see, a prayer like that allows you to maintain a focus because instead of, your, instead of shifting towards this, uh, d- this desire for it just a, uh, uh, this desire for real vengeance, instead of shifting towards that in yourself and that becoming the focus of your work and the focus of your task, Instead, you're able to let God have those things. So consider for yourself how much brain power and how much energy are you spending dwelling on and concocting and and repeating over and over again the wrongs that have been done to you. Thinking over and over again on all, all of the ways that your boss wasn't for you in this area or that uh, your coworker didn't support you here or that uh, there, this slight could have been undone. Think through how much energy is spent dwelling on those types of things. It, it, instead of letting the real wrongs that have been done simply be placed in God's hands and your efforts towards trying to acquire your own vengeance no longer be yours, but let those be God's. That way you're able to focus on what God has actually called you to do. See, Nehemiah is able to do that. He's able to say, this is a real jeer. This is a real, uh, you know, threat that we're receiving. And yet, uh, to let it be that, and then to, to give the action that's required in response, to just give it to God. That way he can remain focused, and the team can remain focused on the task at work, at hand. So, this is, the taunting fails to halt their work because Nehemiah, by his prayer, is able to remain focused on the task at hand. And so what happens is the enemies then respond as the wall keeps going up. So the enemies respond, and what we have is um, you have the Samaritans who are in the north, the Arabs are in the south, the Ammonites are in the east, and the Ashdodites are in the west. And they have rallied together uh, to do battle to conquer Jerusalem. So all of a sudden, surrounded on all sides is this major threat to this feeble city that's just 
rebuilding their walls. If there ever was a good reason to stop rebuilding, it's seeing those troops form together and seeing those alliances form. And yet, Nehemiah, in verse 9, his response to this action, I feel like Nehemiah 4.9 just sums up Nehemiah in a verse. It says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah prays to God when he sees this grave threat, and immediately he moves into action. He set, they set up a guard that's going to protect them day and night from this impending threat. And so they start to organize themselves in these incredible ways. People who would carry materials from one part of the wall to another. Now they were loaded in such a way where they could carry the materials and carry a sword. At the low parts of the wall where they were exposed, they had people with spears positioned so that it was obvious when you were looking in, over that wall, we will get speared. They would build it with one hand, and they would have a, a sword always strapped on their thighs when they were building. Nehemiah and the men of the city, they started sleeping in their clothes with their sword right next to them so that they were always ready. Nehemiah would work right next to a trumpeter so that whenever they saw a threat starting to mount, they would uh, uh, signal the trumpet so that people would come and rally towards them to fight. All the while, amidst all this preparation and all this setup for defense, the wall keeps going up because this external threat that could have been this huge distraction, they were able to remain focused on what their task was. Sure, this threat is an obstacle, but it's able to be overcome. We can prepare for this. Uh, so another thing that's worth noting here is that Nehemiah never falls into this idea that because there are so many obstacles that he's facing, this must mean that God is no longer being faithful to him. Instead, he rallies and he prays and trusts in God's faithfulness and acts as though through his measures, God will be faithful. Acts as though when they prepare like this, that this is the means that God is using to protect them. He's not distant from the action. He doesn't create this dichotomy of the spiritual and if we just pray and we trust, then we won't need to move into any action and the earthy, right, in which you don't need to pray, you only move into action. The spiritual and the practical are always married for Nehemiah. They're always together. His preparation is an expression of his faith. It's not counter to his faith. And that's an amazing uh, unity that Nehemiah has of worldview that we need to incorporate and relearn as Christians, seeing this real unity of our faith where these spiritual things that we know have tangible implications for our lives and for our work, they aren't distant from each other. You aren't dishonoring God when you're just working and not praying. As Christians, you don't need to be wondering, what is the proper ratio that I need to put these things together? But it is worth considering, right? Perhaps you aren't making progress because of prayerlessness. Perhaps you are so distracted and you're running around like a chip without a rudder because of prayerlessness. That's worth considering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that prayer, uh, 
something to the effect of prayer without work is useless and, and work without prayer is useless. So these are always married together and they are so well in Nehemiah. So next we see him face the internal opposition. Nehemiah 5, 4 through 5. And there were those who said, these are the Jewish people speaking, there are those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what we see now is this internal opposition. There's this outcry from the Jewish people. And what we see are three main issues. Some people are driven into hunger because they aren't able to harvest their food. The rebuilding of the wall effort, the all-hands-on-deck effort of rebuilding the wall probably put a lot of pressure on people. Uh, next, people have their homes that have been so heavily mortgaged that they've uh, been forced into this incredible debt, and the, the final effect of that for the, these third, this third group of people that are outcrying is that they're actually having to sell their sons and daughters into slavery to cover these debts. The issue here that gets exposed is that the lenders who are causing them to mortgage their fields, the people who are buying their sons and daughters in slavery, are their fellow Jewish brothers. It's the people who ought to be rallying with them to help them out of their poverty. Instead, they're taking advantage of their poverty as a, a way to gain for themselves. They're literally standing in direct opposition to the, the larger mission, which is rebuilding this city and this community, and they're using the poverty that's in the city to gain for themselves. Modern, in our modern vernacular, we would say that this is a systemic oppression, and we'd be right. And the Bible speaks clearly about these sorts of things. In Proverbs 10, 15, it says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. So think about this. They're trying to rebuild this strong city in order that the people might have the security. But it doesn't matter if you're in a strong city when your oppressor is behind the wall with you. You see, all this effort to rebuild the city and rebuild the community is undone by those who are only able to short-sightedly see the good deal in front of them without seeing its true downstream implications. So Nehemiah's task then is to raise their horizon and say, what are we actually striving for here as a people? This isn't the short-term security of a few, but this is the long-term security of a whole, of an entire group for all of us. And so Nehemiah, thankfully, is not a stoic, detached leader, but instead Nehemiah is deeply affected by what he hears, and he's filled with anger. But also, thankfully, Nehemiah is pretty emotionally intelligent. And so he doesn't just lash out and act out of the anger that he feels, but he literally says he takes counsel with himself, and he decides what to do. And so he gathers the nobles, and he gathers basically the wealthy of the city who were uh, extorting the poor, and publicly, he reprimands them. And when you find out, sorry, this thing's kind of bothering me today. When you find out 
what Nehemiah had been doing in order to protect the poor, his anger feels very justified. He says, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. You see, what we see Nehemiah doing is he's explaining, first of all, we have literally, we've been working to buy back our brothers from their slavery to the nations, and then you bring them here and you're just making them slaves again. And then he raises their horizon to say, look at the bigger picture here. We are working to build a nation, not just your own personal wealth. And finally, he explains that this cost that the poor are bearing is actually a cost that the whole city is bearing. Because Nehemiah and his servants and his workers have been giving and supplying the grain to the poor. And so with that type of a stark backdrop, all of a sudden the evil of what seemed like probably just a good deal, the evil of that good deal is now apparent. See, this forces us to consider what are the downstream implications of the good deals that we make. We need to be considering that. It's really important. And Nehemiah puts a lot of pressure on this. Ultimately, what we see happen is uh, the debts are forgiven, and they do repent, and it brings this incredible unity. It's so easy for the short-term good deal to act as this distraction from what our ultimate goal is that we're truly working towards. And unless you have it certain in your mind what it is that you are actually using your life for, then those good deals will always take you off track. You'll be fickle to them, easily swayed. Nehemiah wasn't because he was certain of his commitment. Finally, the personal attack. Nehemiah is attacked very personally and deliberately. In Nehemiah 6, 2 through 4, it says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecophirum, which is the way I like to say it, Hecophirum, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. That's probably the, one of the best email away messages or email auto responses that you could have. I'm doing a great work, so I can't come down to meet you. Why should I leave this great work to come down and talk with you? But that still brings a point, that uh, uh, still brings us to a point because it, it's about focus. You see, all they were trying, Nehemiah understood that these people are out to harm me. And I could engage with them in some sort of public relations way to try and mitigate this harm. But instead, he remains with a complete focus on the task at hand. Four times they respond to him like that. The fifth time, they write him and they say, listen, the king knows that you're rebuilding this city in order to become king yourself. 
and you're trying to restore Jerusalem to the kingdom that it once was. That's a very dangerous thing for the king to know. But Nehemiah is still undeterred, and he writes back and he says that he's not going to meet them, and he calls them explicitly liars. You are lying. I am not trying to become the king. The king would not have gotten word of that because it's not true. It's not happening. There are times where it's appropriate to just call liars liars. That's a, those moments exist. It's possible to be so sensitive to the opinions of others or to be so sensitive to the point of uh, such a distrust of yourself that you're unable to uh, move forward, e- even, uh, even amidst such clear lies. Nehemiah was not that way. Finally, I think the worst personal attack that Nehemiah faces is from a false prophet whose name was uh, Shemaiah. And Shemaiah uh, coaxes Nehemiah into his home, and he tells Nehemiah, you need to go hide in the temple because they are coming to kill you. And he says it in such a way that uh, appears prophetic. And Nehemiah's response, I think, characterizes him so well. He says in Nehemiah 6.11, says, But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah answers him with a clear understanding of himself. See, because Nehemiah understood himself so clearly, his life had, had explicit boundaries. So Nehemiah knows his top boundary and his bottom boundary, and that's explained in this. He says, should such a man as I run away? Nehemiah knows that he is not the type of man that would stoop so low as to run away. That is simply not who he is. If he were to run away, he would become someone totally different. A man that if he looked in the mirror, he wouldn't be able to recognize. Because he knew himself, he wouldn't stoop below this type of a moment. He wouldn't stoop below in order to run. But Nehemiah also knew his upper boundary. Nehemiah was not the type of man, even though he'd seen incredible success, even though he had completely seen the hand of God on him, he walked each day in constant answered prayer, it seems. I mean, right now, the wall's going up like crazy. The guy's on a heater. He's, uh, oh man, when a joke flies in your head. Uh, he's Reaganing. if any of you watch 30 Rock. <laughs> no one does, okay. So... <laughs> He's doing really well, and yet he knows his upper limit, which is when he's called to, which is when this man says, go hide in the temple. He says, what, uh, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Because he knows that to walk into the temple, into the presence of God, into the real presence of the holiness of God, he would certainly die because he is not holy, and he knows that. And because he has this clear picture of who he is, these boundaries of I'm called to be this good man, and yet I'm just a man, because he knows those boundaries, it directs how he's called to use his life. And he knows the answer clearly. He won't go in. He won't 
run away because he, those boundaries dictate who he is. So many of us don't know that. And so we take on too much and we walk into areas that we shouldn't be walking into because we don't realize that you're just a person. This can't all be yours. This rescue isn't all yours. You're called to a task and we need you there. Likewise, the other side of the coin, you're called to a holiness as a Christian. You're called to a difference in your life. You're called to a resoluteness, a faithfulness. And we need you there. You can't stoop below it. Because Nehemiah understands this, the wall, despite all this opposition, it goes up. Nehemiah 6, 15 to 16, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. The wall is finished in 52 days. Outrageously fast. It's a triumph of concentration. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The shortness of the amount of time, the unity of focus, this triumph of concentration, they all attested to this one fact, that God was the one who was rebuilding the wall. If we get that together, if we get that perhaps God is the one who's working to redeem our city, ultimately this is his. And if we get in light of the gospel that he is a gracious God, who has demonstrated his commitment for us far more than Nehemiah even knew. Because we've seen his commitment demonstrated to redeeming the whole world in that he sacrificed his son in order to do it. And we see in the resurrection that we have this amazing hope no matter, that no matter how dire the circumstances, even when, when death seems to have had the final word, death doesn't get the final word. That allows us to persevere through so many obstacles. I'll finish there. Because <laughs> that's the point of the sermon. All right, next question, or questions. Nehemiah had clear instruction from God and the accompanying clarity. How do we discern when to ignore criticism and when to concede to the critic because he, she is right? I started off talking about how the Bible provides us with an incredible clarity to view the world through. And if you aren't viewing the world through the lens of Scripture, if that's not informing the way you see things, then I don't think you will be able to tell. Because there's, there's nothing grounding you in what is right and what is wrong. We don't have a consensus on rightness and wrongness. We need something to inform that, and we need to be constantly revisiting it to understand what is rightness and what is wrongness. That said, uh, uh, you're, you're right. This is a very difficult thing to do, uh, to discern when to ignore criticism and when to take it in. I think the key is to practice 
not just being reactionary, but being able to be receptive and holding on to your emotions in the same way that Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was able to, uh, Nehemiah was able to hear something that led him to incredible anger and then take counsel with himself so that he would be able to move forward wisely and appropriately. So first, I think you need to read your Bible. You need to learn how to take control, take counsel with yourself, probably through prayer. Uh, next question. Like you said, with respect to jeers and jeering, isn't the threat of being invaded and plundered even more motivation to complete the wall, to protect the citizens of Jerusalem and not a distraction? Uh, yeah, I think that that could definitely be the case, that this acts as a clear motivation. The difference is when you have the option to stand guard or you have the option to lift a boulder. And I think that that's where the tension sort of took place. And that's why that's where the text takes us. They need to explain how were they able to address this danger while building the wall. And so we get specific examples, carrying uh, materials and carrying a sword, working with a sword strapped to their thigh, a strategy. But the, the key thing to remember is that all of the strategy centered around rebuilding the wall. That was the task at hand. And so the strategy focused on that. The primary goal of the strategy didn't shift to defeating these enemies. And I think that's what the text is trying to communicate. And that's what we ought to take away as well. Next question. Great. All right, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and we're going to take communion. This is a symbol, it's a representation of Jesus' broken body and his spilt blood for us. And that's important because uh, Nehemiah couldn't enter the presence of God, and the reason he couldn't was because he was a sinner like us. He, he was broken in all sorts of ways. And this is a reminder that God, in working his redemption in the world, took that brokenness upon himself in Jesus so that we can have hope to lead lives like Nehemiah led, no matter what our circumstances currently are. And so we come to the table to remember that. Uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, we ask that you abstain. But I'd also ask that you consider perhaps what it would mean to have that brokenness placed on Jesus and to live in a life that has clear purpose and direction. So with that, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts to describe to us what our boundaries are. Father, that you would allow us to focus on the task at hand and that you would uh, remind us that the, uh, it, the enemies that we work against um, are not flesh and blood. Father, that you would allow us to fight the sin that's in our hearts. Lord, I pray for uh, just continued or a new level of focus. Father, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, 
feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.